It's a somber Christmas in Bethlehem as church leaders cancel celebrations because of the Israel-Hamas war. It's Monday, December 25th. This is WBUR's Morning Edition. Good morning, I'm Sharon Brody. The decision to cancel those celebrations comes as Israel says it is intensifying its campaign against Hamas in Gaza. Also, shipping giants say they are resuming operations on the Red Sea following attacks by Iran-backed militants. And this hour, a U.S. immigration lawyer discusses how politics is shifting the discourse on immigration. Plus, reviewers from America's Test Kitchen share thoughts from a new book that explores the best tools for home chefs. In sports, the Patriots notched a win in Denver. A mostly cloudy Christmas around Boston with highs near 50 degrees. It's 7.01. Now the news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. Health officials in Gaza say Israeli airstrikes have killed nearly 100 people, many from two extended families in central Gaza over the weekend. Israeli military officials announced the deaths of more than a dozen troops in recent days, one of the heaviest death tolls in the more than two months of fighting between Israel and Hamas. NPR's Carrie Khan reports in Bethlehem, the grim toll of the war has cast a solemn mood this Christmas Day in the traditional birthplace of Jesus. Religious services continue in Bethlehem, but all public celebrations, parades and marches have been canceled. Palestinians here, like Ahmed Tayyir, says this is not a time for rejoicing. He says he has lost 30 extended family members in Gaza during the war. We hope, we hope that Hamas and Israel find some way to live. This is all we hope that. Traditional nativity scenes around the city have been replaced by replicas of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph amongst rubble and razor wire. Carrie Kahn, NPR News, Bethlehem. A New England-based organization is gathering toys and gifts for children who lost their parents in the war in Ukraine. Susan Matheson, the co-founder of the group Common Man for Ukraine, has made several trips to the region since the war broke out nearly two years ago. What we do is focus on children, children who are victims of a war. What they do deserve is food, warmth, and love. And so that's what we're working to provide. The organization, which operates all year, has made a number of volunteer trips, bringing medical supplies to the front lines. Wall Street is hoping that a so-called Santa Claus rally will continue to lift up the market when trading resumes on Tuesday. NPR's David Gurra reports stocks have already risen for eight weeks in a row. Both the U.S. stock market and the bond market will be closed for the Christmas holiday. And in the days leading up to New Year's, Wall Street will try to build on record-setting gains. It's a time of year when historically there have been gains. The broad-based S&P 500 is up more than 24 percent year-to-date. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average has been setting fresh highs. New economic data have boosted hopes the Federal Reserve will feel confident enough in the progress it's made fighting high inflation by hiking interest rates that it will start cutting them, something policymakers have said is on the table. David Gura, NPR News, New York. This is NPR News in Washington. 
A holiday tradition known as Tuba Christmas turns 50 this year. It started at the skating rink in New York City's Rockefeller Plaza. Since then, as NPR's Neda Ulibi reports, Tuba Christmas has spread to nearly 300 towns and cities across the U.S. The tuba players who gather to perform Christmas carols are amateurs and professional musicians. Some are school kids. Some are senior citizens. You can find tuba Christmases in Alaska, Hawaii, Florida, Maine, and Washington D.C. In Colorado, Charlie Ortega has played in tuba Christmases with both his late father and his teenage son. That was amazing. I had one on one side, one on the other, and we were all just beaming. It was great. Tuba players rarely get to play the melody. It's a joy, Ortega says, to be in the spotlight with other tubas, euphoniums, baritones, and big brass instruments bedecked for the occasion with ornaments, holly, and Christmas lights. Neda Ulibi, NPR News. The Food and Drug Administration says it's looking into reports that fake weight loss drugs are being sold through some legitimate drug supply sources. The FDA says it has confiscated thousands of units of Ozempic, that's the diabetes drug widely used for weight loss. The agency, along with drug maker Novo Nordisk, are testing the shots and are expected to release their findings in the coming weeks. This is NPR News. I'm Sharon Brody. This is WBUR in Boston. The MBTA is operating on a Sunday schedule for Christmas. Post offices, banks, and government offices are closed today. Parking meters are free in most cities and towns, including Boston, Brookline, and Cambridge. Many of the migrants in the state family shelter system are celebrating Christmas differently than they're used to. Volunteers from Woburn, where several migrants are living, held early Christmas parties this year. Andrians Renaudin is the director of shelter services for the International Institute of New England, which works closely with the families. And she says the celebrations were relaxed and kids were excited to get presents, but parents were sad to miss out on the Haitian traditions from Christmases back home. Even though they're not going to have the chance to celebrate the way they usually do, but they're thinking about you know times when they used to have those moments and celebrating with their family and. That alone brings joy to them, and they're looking forward for a day where they can do that again. Renaudin says she's working to organize a traditional celebration of Haitian Independence Day on January 1st. The head of the MBTA says he's hoping state lawmakers will find money in the new year to help bring the transit system up to speed. But T General Manager Phil Eng acknowledges. The T likely won't get the entire 24 billion dollars that he says is needed. Ng told WBUR's Radio Boston that any money the T gets will need to be spent on both fixing problems and planning for the future. And what it means is we have a good picture of our needs, and that doesn't mean just give us the dollars and we're going to put it back the way it was. What we want to do is to look for the future and put it back better than it was. Ng expects the T to be able to eliminate all existing slow zones by the end of next year. It's seven oh seven. WBUR supporters include the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for 55 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
The Patriots pulled off a win in Denver last night. They beat the Broncos 26-23 to thanks to a last-minute field goal. It's only the fourth victory of the season for the Pats. The Celtics have a Christmas matchup in Los Angeles. The Seas play the Lakers at 5 p.m. Some areas of fog this Christmas morning, a mostly cloudy day in store, highs near 50 degrees, and temperatures dipping into the upper 30s tonight under mostly cloudy skies, and the fog will make a return late in the night. The fog sticks around in some areas in the morning, and then partly sunny skies tomorrow, with highs reaching the low 50s. It is 44 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. WBUR supporters include the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation, recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at macfound.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Christmas morning in Bethlehem is somber, not the usual joyful town with parades and bands in Manger Square. Church leaders canceled celebrations there because of the Israel-Hamas war. Some Palestinian Christians say they are not celebrating when, according to health officials in Gaza, more than 20,000 people have been killed since Israel began its offensive after the October 7th Hamas attack on southern Israel that killed some 1,200 people. Joining us now from Bethlehem in the Israeli-occupied West Bank is NPR's Jason DeRose. Good morning, Jason. Good morning. So what is the scene like in Bethlehem this morning? Well, Christmas cheer is definitely not in the air. There are about 200,000 Palestinian Christians who live in and around Bethlehem, the Galilee region, and Gaza. And usually crowds of them would be packed into Manger Square for celebrations on Christmas Day. Loudspeakers would be blaring carols. But now the mood is subdued, and Manger Square is essentially deserted this morning. And what have you been hearing from the people that you've spoken with? Those I've spoken with bring up the war immediately. You know, Bethlehem is just 45 miles from Gaza. People here have friends and family there, and they say they just can't celebrate knowing conditions for people there. I met Kudi Zara in Manger Square. He's a 22-year-old electrical engineering student. In this war, and it's really bad days, you know. Even if we, if we make some parties, we are not happy from our heart, you know. But if Jesus is still in our heart, like, it will be heavy. As he says, it's the parties that are canceled, but people are still observing Christmas as a religious holiday. The Catholic Midnight Mass at the Church of the Nativity was full. I was at another worship service earlier last evening where the pastor said he wasn't expecting many people, maybe 25 or 30, but instead the church was packed with about 200 people. Mm. So many they were printing extra bulletins as the opening hymn began. In fact, mine was still warm from the printer. Oh, wow. So it sounds like people are finding some solace in those worship ceremonies at this point. I understand, Jason, that the only Christmas decoration in Manger Square is a nativity this year. Is that right? That's right, but it's not your typical cozy manger scene. It's this destroyed nativity, statues of Mary and Joseph and Jesus encircled by razor wire. There's rubble everywhere, big pieces of broken concrete. The shepherd is turned away in despair. The artist who created this nativity is Tarek Salsa. He says he wanted to show the Holy Family as Palestinian refugees, oppressed, rejected, displaced. He says pain is there as long as the occupation is there. If the occupation withdraws, then the pain is over. And Jason, outside of Bethlehem, can you fill us in on the latest developments in Israel's war against Hamas? 
Well, the United Nations says more than 80% of Gaza's population is now displaced. Over the weekend, health officials in Gaza say at least 70 people were killed on Sunday alone. And the Israeli military says it sustained some of its heaviest losses since the war began. Also, the humanitarian crisis continues to worsen. Food is scarce. The UN says starvation is happening in Gaza. And clean water is a huge problem. The average person uses about 17 liters of water a day. Right now, the World Food Program says each person in Gaza is getting less than two. Mm. That is NPR's Jason DeRose in Bethlehem. Jason, thank you so much for your reporting. You're welcome. Teens, or even tweens, with holiday gift money are likely to spend at least some of it on skincare products. Marketing experts say cosmetic and skincare companies are doubling down on social media targeting younger teens. And as Alabama Public Radio's Corey Young reports, kids are buying in big time. Skincare routine for a beginner at the age of 12. The one for like 12. 11-year-old Natalia Pruitt sits at the family dining table with her 16-year-old sister, Kaylin. They scroll through YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram skinfluencer videos on their phones. This toner water, look how empty it is. I love it. Natalia has a baby face with flawless skin. Some of her favorite videos feature cleansers, moisturizers, and serums. They have bright, colorful packaging and brand names. Most are out of her budget. Some products are like $90. Some are like a lot of money. And some are like just like 30 maybe 20 Not all the promoted products are expensive. Some are available at the drugstore. Her sister Kayla knows the videos are advertising. Still, the acne and wrinkle products catch her attention. So if it does work, I will spend money on it. Because it's, I mean, I want to look super pretty, so why not? We went from cowgirl boots to bum bum care cream, and I'm like, what is that even for? That's Rosanna Pruitt, Natalia and Kaylin's mom. She's puzzled by the skincare product obsession, but marketing experts aren't. The Pew Research Center recently found nearly one in three U.S. teens say they're on YouTube or TikTok several times a day. Almost one in five say they're on it constantly. And that's good for business, says Dinesh Shah, a marketing professor at Georgia State University. Teenagers is traditionally an extremely hard segment to reach out to through traditional forms of media. And so this is working like a charm. Shah says the nature of social media consumption, combined with many teens' preoccupation with appearance, makes kids prime targets. There's not a single cosmetic company you can think of today, right, that does not have a strong presence on social media because it's just so powerful and effective. But when it comes to beauty, this kind of advertising directed at her kids is a slippery slope, says Rosanna Pruitt. It worries me that it's going to give them a little bit of a complex about aging because they're not supposed to be worried about that right now. There's concern some popular products might be too harsh for young skin, says dermatologist Ann Chappis, who practices in New York City. As the mother of a sixth grade girl, She's well aware of the teen skincare marketing trend. Young teenage preteen skin doesn't need anti-aging products except for sunscreen. Sunscreen is our number one anti-aging product that everyone should use. That advice, Chappis says, along with a reminder that beauty also comes from within, should leave both teen skin and wallets glowing. For NPR News, I'm Corey Young in Fairhope, Alabama. 
For many families, visiting Santa at the mall is a holiday tradition. But Jose Delaglio with the nonprofit Autism Speaks says for some kids, the experience can be overwhelming. Many people with autism rely on knowing what to expect and feel. So crowds, noises and busy lines, all things that go along with a, a mall really create a discomfort for them. Paulina Ganung has autism, so does her five-year-old son, Liam. She says being out in public can sometimes be difficult for Liam. He is very aware of other people judging him, and that causes further dysregulation on his part. So they went to one of the hundreds of sensory-friendly Santa events that were held across the country. No crowds, no lines. Even so, Liam at first, she says, was scared. So we gave him a blanket, and he actually made himself a little cave and hid in there while he regulated that it was a judgment-free zone where he could have a screen and no one's giving the eye looks or comments. And Santa didn't rush him. Within a few minutes, he was able to regulate, and Santa actually walked over and sat on the floor with him and tried to engage with him, not giving that direct pressure of trying to get his attention, but just showing that mutual interest in what he was interested in. That was really special for me to see because not... Everywhere you go has that sort of inclusion and understanding. A little understanding and a big Christmas gift. Every year in hundreds of cities around the country, musicians have been coming together for Tuba Christmas. NPR's Netta Ulubi tells us all about that bass. This is the tradition's 50th year. On the very first Tuba Christmas, 300 musicians showed up at the ice skating rink at New York's Rockefeller Plaza. Since then, Tuba Christmas concerts have popped up in practically every state. Anchorage, Alaska this year, Tombstone, Arizona, the Big Island in Hawaii, here's one at the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. A few years ago, overachievers in Kansas City set a tuba Christmas world record. We played Silent Night for five straight minutes with 835 tubas. Stephanie Brimhall works with the Kansas City Symphony. I asked her what one word might best describe the experience of hearing hundreds of caroling tubas. Rumbling, it would be one. Enveloping. That's Mike Galimo. He directs the band program at Iowa State University. It's this warm, low organ kind of quality where you can feel food in your lower intestinal tract move because of the vibrations. Galimo says that's a good thing. So is the chance for all kinds of members of the tuba family to take the spotlight for a change. Usually those big, fat-toned brass instruments never get to play the melody. This year we had a helicon, which is like a Civil War version of a tuba. And somebody had an Ophiclide one year. Usually there's a few people that have a double bell euphonium. Less exotic are those white fiberglass sousaphones they play in marching bands. We call those Tupperware tubas. That's tuba humor. You'll hear a lot of it. We call it the heavy metal concert of the year. My first tuba Christmas was when I was in middle school. Charles Ortega has been playing at tuba Christmases since the 1980s. This year, he organized one in Pueblo, Colorado. Ortega learned tuba from his father, who used to perform in a polka band in Texas. He loved playing the tuba. Even the, the year that he passed, he was still playing. 
Some of Ortega's very best tuba Christmas memories, he says, were the ones where he played with his dad and his teenage son, who also plays the tuba. That was amazing. I had one on one side, one on the other, and we were all just beaming. It was great. It's not uncommon now for multiple generations to play in tuba Christmas concerts. That's what happens when a tradition endures and gets bigger, broader, and brassier. Neto Ulibi, NPR News. This is NPR News. Thanks for starting your day with 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, you'll consider how politics is shifting the discourse on immigration. It's 7.20. Winter has begun, and with flurries of white, fluffy snow on the horizon, we asked how big can a snowflake get? The largest on record? 15 inches. But was it a snowflake? When people hear the you know world's biggest snowflake, they always imagine a snow crystal, which is a different beast entirely. I'm Elsa Chang. More on all things considered from NPR News. Listen again to 90.9 WBUR at the end of your day today. On this Christmas morning, some areas of fog around. It'll be a mostly cloudy Christmas with highs today reaching about 50 degrees. Clouds tonight with lows in the upper 30s overnight. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday and highs reaching the low 50s. It is 44 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of a line probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com. From Luminescence Foundation, dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. From the Sci Sims Foundation, since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm A. Martinez. Whether you're banging nails into a two-by-four or whipping up the perfect souffle, there's no substitute for having the right tool for the job. And one way to keep the chef in your home happy is to make sure their kitchen is stocked with the right kitchen gear. But there are so many slicers, dicers, cookers, and fryers. How do you know what works and what might leave a bad taste in your mouth? Lisa McManus and Hannah Crowley review gadgets and tools for America's test kitchen. They've written a new book titled Kitchen Gear, The Ultimate Owner's Manual. It's chock full of reviews and tips. And they sent me a few essential kitchen tools to try out while keeping an eye on me over Zoom. Can you see my hands? Yeah, the very fingertips are cut off, but we can see most of your hands. Yeah. Is that a precursor to what's actually going to happen? The very fingertips getting Oh, gosh. That's not a, yeah, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> yeah, my wife is the cook of the house. I have trouble remembering which side of the frying pan is up. So we focused on the basic tools every chef needs. Here's Lisa McManus. I would say everybody should have a really good, comfortable, sharp knife, a chef's knife. Hannah Crowley says every chef also needs a good cutting board. 
the best choices are plastic and wood. You should never, ever, ever use a glass cutting board. They will instantly dull your knife. People have them, they're decorative, but never use them as a cutting board. All right, noted. Let's start with a knife. Hannah and Lisa sent their favorite. It's an eight inch chef's knife by Victorinox. It's a very narrow, thin, sharp, precise knife. This knife is only about $40. Hannah took that knife over to MIT and they looked under a very powerful microscope at it and the knife that cost $300 and it was comparable. That's actually what they use in the Purdue packing houses to break down the chickens, that exact knife. So can you imagine the number of chickens Purdue goes through? That thing stands up. All right, let's try it out. Uh, now, got to understand something here. Handing me a paintbrush doesn't make me Picasso, and giving me a great knife does not make me a chef, which is why the next part of our story is titled, How Many People Does It Take to Cut Up an Onion? You're going to cut that in half? Cut it the long way through the root, so you're cutting the root in half. Okay, I just, I cut it something already. I don't know what I cut. <laughs> let's see. I cut this yeah, part no, right no. The other end. So oh, now... Yeah. <laughs> Now cut this part off here? Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> With the sharp part actually going in towards the onion, towards your hand. Oh, I see it. Okay. Yeah. And just wiggle it back, forward and back. Oh, like this? No. <laughs> yeah. And maybe even pinch and hold it up a little higher to get a little more control. Oh, okay. There. Well, yeah, it's... it's... Yeah, no, no, it looks good. Okay, yeah, that's really go. good. Yeah. That looks good. Are you crying? Um, I'm crying in joy that I actually <laughs> did this, but the onion has not made me cry yet. That's good. That's a sign of a sharp knife. You know, if you're crying a lot with your onions, maybe you need to sharpen your knife. The sharp part away from my fingers. Okay, good. Check. Now, <laughs> onion was cut, fingers intact. It's time to cook it using the next essential kitchen tool that Hannah and Lisa sent me. A 12-inch cast iron skillet from Lodge. You know, we've talked about what one skillet would you take to a desert island, et cetera, or if you could only buy one pan to get started with. People think of this as a frying pan, and it is that, but it's also, it can be used as a roasting pan. You can bake a cookie or a cake or a pie or cornbread in it. Now, the packaging says seasoned cast iron skillet. What does that mean? Does it have salt and pepper all worked in the skillet? Cast iron, if it's exposed to moisture and air, will start to rust. So basically, it's coated with oil, and it's heated, and that forms a natural nonstick and protective coating on the cast iron. Now, Lisa and Hannah, once my wife was uh, not at home, and uh, I decided to be considerate and do the dishes. And I grabbed her cast iron skillet, and I could already see people are just... <laughs> no, we know where this is going. <laughs> so I, I thought, well, I'll just clean it for her. So I, I took some common in there, some water, and got like a a scrub brush and started really scrubbing the cast iron skillet, really trying oh. to clean it because I thought the cleaner it gets, the happier she'll be. <laughs> and the look of mortification on her face, which is a look that I'm very, very familiar with <laughs> over 25 years of marriage. <laughs> but tell me why, why was that a mistake? The seasoning you're building up on that, it's a natural substance and you can scrub it right back off again. Luckily, you can repair that relationship with the pan and your life. But yeah, you shouldn't scrub it with anything that violent. It's never necessary, really. Please forgive me. I know not what I do. Please forgive me. I can't stop loving you. All right, time now to cook up my less than perfectly cut up onion. I poured a little olive oil into that seasoned skillet and tossed it in. 
Nothing better than the smell of onions and garlic starting to cook in a kitchen. If someone sees something on TV or sees something in the store that catches their eye, but maybe they don't know if they need it or will use it, what's the one question that they need to have in mind before they invest in uh, some kind of kitchen gadget or kitchen gear? I hate to say a lot of stuff that is seen on TV or on Instagram, often they're just made to be eye-catching and they're not actually simple, functional, durable. You know, you don't want something with a billion parts. You're going to lose them. You have to clean them. You have to dry them. It's great if it looks good, but we want it to work. Yeah. Do I already have this? For example, if you have a convection oven, you basically have an air fryer, you know? And so I've talked several relatives and friends out of getting air fryers. And then I would say the second question, will I use this? Because uh, I don't really bake. I have every single baking pan you could need because I thought that's what one should buy for a kitchen. So do you bake cake at home? No, maybe leave that or gift it to your friend who you know loves to bake. Lisa McManus and Hannah Crowley are with America's Test Kitchen. They wrote Kitchen Gear, the ultimate owner's manual. Thank you for taking me safely through all this. I got all my fingers. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Please forgive me. I know not what I do. Please forgive me. I can't stop loving you. Don't deny me this pain I'm going through. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 745 on WBUR's Morning Edition, you'll take a look at the Swift effect, specifically the boost to the Kansas City economy when Taylor Swift brought her tour there and started dating Kansas City Chiefs star Travis Kelsey. It's 729. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at sincere.com. From NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. At least 68 people were killed in an Israeli airstrike targeting the Al Maghazi refugee camp. The BBC's Shima Khalil reports officials from the Gaza Health Ministry say the number of dead is likely to rise given the large number of families living in the area. Many here also have family and friends trapped inside Gaza. I spoke to one young man who was on the phone to his father, and his father is trapped in a church in the east of Gaza City. And his dad was telling me there's just destruction all around us, and they're very reluctant to move because he says that the roads leading to areas in the south are extremely dangerous. The BBC's Shima Khalil. In Bethlehem, many of the usual fixtures and events marking the traditional birthplace of Christ were curtailed because of the Israel-Hamas war. Churches canceled services and masses. At the Vatican, the Pope lamented the Gaza war, calling for a release of the hostages held by Hamas and an end to Israel's assault. The Pope also called on Catholics to move beyond the materialism typically seen at Christmas. A shooting in a shopping mall Christmas Eve killed at least one person and left a handful of others injured. The Colorado Police spokesman Ira Cronin. We do have multiple people detained right now. And again, we're working to figure out 
if the shooter is among them or not. We can't definitively say that at this point. This is NPR. This is WBUR in Boston. I'm Sharon Brody. One person is displaced from their home following a fire in Roxbury last night. No one was injured. The Boston Fire Department tells the Boston Globe the fire was on the second floor of a building in Rockville Park. Investigators are still working to figure out what caused it. The deer population in southeastern Massachusetts is causing what some are calling a silent crisis, putting farmers out of business. Susan Murray is the executive director of the Southeastern Massachusetts Agricultural Partnership. She says overpopulation of deer in Norfolk, Bristol, and Plymouth counties causes more than $1 million in farm losses every year. Farms are an oasis for deer when surrounding forests are depleted due to overpopulation and drought. Deer eat just about every crop we plant, including vegetables, berries, grapes, cranberries, tree fruit, flowers, nursery nursery crops. Murray is backing the creation of a Deer Population Control Commission and also supports Sunday hunting in Massachusetts. The state's wildlife department says the ideal density of deer is 12 to 18 in a square mile. In some areas of eastern Massachusetts, the population is more than double that number. The holiday season can be a time for indulgence, but health professionals warn against overconsumption. Emily Lau specializes in cardiovascular health at Mass General Hospital. She says even for patients with chronic diseases, such as diabetes, who need to focus on what they eat, it can be a struggle to maintain healthy diets between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Lau advises practicing moderation. Fill up your plate and really stick to the amount, you know, the small portions of each of the main dishes and sides and and really try to avoid going back for second, third, or fourth helpings. Lau says mindfulness exercises and meditation can help manage stress during festivities. It's 7.33. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. The Patriots notched a victory in Denver yesterday. They beat the Broncos 26-23 to thanks to a last-minute field goal. The Pats scored 20 of those points in the third quarter. The Pats are 4-11 and on the season. The Celtics are spending Christmas in Los Angeles. They take on the Lakers today. Tip-off is at 5 p.m. It's 44 degrees in Boston. Some fog around in areas this Christmas morning. Clouds today highs around 50 degrees. Lows in the upper 30s overnight. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then partly sunny and temperatures reaching the low 50s. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from the station. And from the Pew Charitable Trusts, sharing how people and communities can come together in polarizing times on the After the Fact podcast, available at pewtrusts.org slash after the fact. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation, at ecmcfoundation.org. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. 
Even as Texas has stiffened penalties for illegal border crossings, lawmakers in Washington seem no closer to a deal on border security. Immigration is likely to be a key issue in the 2024 election, so we wondered how the political conversation around this major issue has shifted over the past year. For one perspective, we reached out to Angela Kelly of the American Immigration Lawyers Association. It's a group that advocates for immigrant rights. Our colleague Michelle Martin started by asking Kelly how she sees that shift. I think the focus has become much sharper on our southern border and the numbers of folks that are, are coming to the U.S. for a variety of reasons. Um, we have now four countries in our hemisphere that have very unstable, unworkable governments, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, and Venezuela. But this has also been a year of the untold story about there being legal pathways for people. Um, there's also sponsorship opportunities where Americans have come forward and said, I'd like to sponsor a Ukrainian or an Afghan or a Cuban or a Nicaraguan. If you think back over the year, is there one or two things that you think have been particularly consequential in kind of shifting the conversation or focusing our attention? At the beginning of this year, uh, President Biden and Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas did a press conference. They did a lot of media work laying out what was their vision for a, a combination of carrots and sticks in terms of policies that would seek to deter people from coming to the U.S. without authorization, and then also up, open up legal pathways for people so that they're coming with a visa, not with a smuggler, which is, of course, a far better approach to immigration in the U.S. You also saw in May where an order from the Trump administration that was known as Title 42 that was expelling people right at the border without giving them a chance to explain that they may have been fleeing persecution, that order was lifted. And we all expected there to be a, a rush of people coming to the U.S., and, and that didn't happen. And so I think that there are some lessons from what we've seen unfold over this year that have worked well and others that we need to do more of, um, and some that haven't worked so well that um, I think could be a playbook, if you will, going forward. We have got a different world in terms of the types and migrants that are on the move, why they're leaving, why they're coming. And we can certainly be a welcoming nation, but we need to have a balance of control and compassion. And, and I think finding that sweet spot is going to be the challenge for whoever sits in the White House. What do you think are the politics of this going into 2024. It is clear that kind of a more restrictive attitude toward immigration is something that has been a Republican position, certainly since the Trump administration. I mean, I think in years prior, it was it was very different. But from the Trump era onward, I think a very restrictive yes. attitude toward immigration seems to be kind of the standard for the Republican Party. And, and, and then you see with the Biden administration, it seems like a much more mixed picture. So how would you describe sort of the politics of this going into 2024? Yeah, I think that's a, a fair description of it. Trump, from the day he announced that he was going to run for president in 2015, uh, the famous words he said coming down the escalator um, was that, you know, he described immigrants as rapists and as basically bad people. He well, is not, all, up not all immigrants, immigrants from some places, I think, I think would be fair. Yes, yes. But the description was, was not a positive one, shall we say. Um, and that certainly hasn't changed. Um, his rhetoric just of a few days ago um, has been consistent and has been escalating, talking about immigrants as poisoning the blood of the country. That, that, that sends shivers down the spines, I think, of a lot of people, whether you're a Democrat or, or Republican. And I think that there is a, a real challenge to find solutions that last and that do balance being um, a nation that is a nation of laws and a nation of immigrants. 
We need to find pragmatic progressives, centrist conservatives that can come together and lean and look forward to what would be the right set of policies that ensure that, yes, we are offering humanitarian protection to those who qualify in a way that is fair and in a way that is effective and fast and final. And that is, I think, at the heart of what we're trying to figure out at the southern border. The challenge in doing it today on the backs of the, the debate that's happening on the Hill around a funding bill for Ukraine or for Israel, that's not the right venue for having such a difficult conversation. But I think it's inevitable because the system is broken and Americans want solutions. And that's, that's a reasonable demand. That's Angela Kelly. She's senior advisor with the American Immigration Lawyers Association. Angela Kelly, thanks so much for sharing these insights with us. Thank you very much. It's the most wonderful time of the year and the busiest for air travel. If you're among the millions of passengers traveling over the holidays, maybe you'll get to enjoy a meal on board. It's super important to connect the traveler to their families and to support that connection with a flavor that reminds them about memorable times of the past, of their childhood and of their family gatherings. Jens Kulin is the president of Gate Group North America. It's one of the largest airline catering companies in the world. He says some carriers are offering festive menu options throughout the holidays, such as... Roasted sliced turkey breast with a rosemary gravy, but then chestnut stuffings, glazed baby carrots, the Russell sprouts. And sure, holiday meal planning can be a long process. But have you ever thought about the airline's chef? To just create a one particular menu, it takes usually from the beginning to until it flies six to eight months. Farm to plane? Emirates does prawns and salmon. Uh, you know, things like that occur over the holidays. Chef Dennis Litley is a food blogger who knows what it's like to have a holiday meal at 30,000 plus feet. On British Air, we had roast turkey or a choice of that and mince pie. Also on Swiss Air, I had a quite an incredible meal. A lot of times they'll wow you with desserts. They'll come out with a chocolate mousse or yule log. One smaller airline flew on uh, actually baked cookies in the sky. Just the smell alone was worth the experience. While in-flight meals can occasionally be as delicious as terrestrial dining, passengers are advised to go light. The low pressure and a high altitude changes how your body reacts. So you could get bloating, you could have you know, stomach issues. Chef Dennis recommends steering clear of salty and gassy foods, as well as things that can dehydrate you, like coffee and alcohol. Of course, the kind of meal and whether you actually get one depends on where you're seated. Business class and first class always gets better quality food or a more, um, and I, I don't want to say appetizing, but they're getting something that's a little special where the regular passengers, you know, get the standard fare. If you're flying coach, but have been nice this year, maybe you'll get a Yule log too. It looks like Christmas, Christmas at the airport. All the planes are grounded. This is NPR News. 
coming up at the top of the hour here on WBUR's Morning Edition, you'll take a look at 2023 in Congress. Lawmakers headed home after a dramatic year, although very little of the drama involved passing legislation. Some areas of fog this Christmas morning, and today the highs will reach about 50 degrees. Clouds tonight, lows in the upper 30s, some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday, and temperatures in the low 50s. It's 44 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museums, more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov. Now in some business news, stock prices for Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals are up following promising results in a trial for a new pain drug. Vertex is trying to create a new class of painkillers to get rid of the need for opioids. The company tells the Boston Globe the new drug has significantly reduced pain in patients in early trials. Vertex expects to release the results of the trial early next year. Boston travel officials expect 2024 to be a record-breaking year for cruises. Massport says the year will set records for passengers and ship volume. This year, cruise business in the city generated more than $135 million. Nearly 150 cruise ships visited the city this year. Needham Bank is expected to go public this week. If successful, then the company will be just the fourth Massachusetts company to go public this year. The company filed to go public in June, just weeks after the collapse of Silicon Valley and Signature Banks. It's 7.44. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Made in Cookware, Made in Cookware is crafted by chefs for use in restaurants and home kitchens around the world. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to create access to opportunity for people and communities by tackling tough social and environmental problems. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from ECMC Foundation at ecmcfoundation.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Taylor Swift did not put Kansas City on the map. It's always been known for jazz and its award-winning food scene. More recently, it's been a sports powerhouse after two Super Bowl wins by the Kansas City Chiefs. And now celebrity culture has put the city in the spotlight. Of course, I'm talking about the relationship between pop star Taylor Swift and the Chiefs' tight end, Travis Kelsey. KCUR's Savannah Holly Bates reports Swiftonomics has given the local economy a boost. 2023 was a year of celebration for Kansas City. Besides the Chiefs beating the Philadelphia Eagles in the Super Bowl, in July, Taylor Swift's Eras Tour came to town. She debuted a new music video and her album Speak Now, Taylor's version, at the KC shows. The city went all out for her stop, creating a lineup of Swift-themed events. And then there was the news that some had suspected all along, when Swift showed up at a Chiefs game wearing the team's colors in September. The rumors apparently are true. Taylor Swift is friends 
with Travis Kelsey. Swelsey, or Trailer, or Tavis, the nicknames people decided to call them, brought renewed worldwide attention to Kansas City. Mayor Quint Lucas says Swift's given Kansas City a new brand, a big reputation, just like the line in one of her songs. I happened to be in Paris this year for the Rugby World Cup. There was a woman from the Foreign Service in New Zealand who said, oh my gosh, you're from Kansas City. It's like, yeah. She's like, Taylor Swift, right? And she's dating some not very famous footballer. I'm like, actually, he's kind of a big deal for us. Visit KC, the city's tourism arm, says the city made about $200 million just from Swift's heiress tour this summer. After her relationship with Kelsey went public, StubHub reported that ticket sales for all Chiefs home games tripled for the rest of the season. Visit KC spokesperson Derek Burns says it's opened a lot of doors for the city to promote itself. Even if Taylor Swift's name isn't in some of the work we're doing, it is still giving people a reason to think of us a little more seriously. According to an analysis by Google Trends, searches asking where is Kansas City more than doubled in the U.S. over the past three months, and search interest in local restaurants skyrockets each time the couple visits one. Even searches for flights based on the pair's travel patterns out of Kansas City are rising. Kansas City business owners say the newfound attention has been a boon for them. Chris Harrington, the owner of West Side Story, sells vintage Kansas City gear. When Swift wore a vintage sweatshirt and a crocheted hat from the store to one of the latest Chiefs games, business soared. It's, it'll be part of our legacy in some sense, you know, like it's kind of like weird as that sounds that one person just buys a sweatshirt and that's like a moment. But for us being a small shop in Kansas City, that is our moment. So we've got some, you know, number 87 hair clips. At Made in KC, are, a, a store selling goods Kelsey's from hundreds number. of local makers, um, co-owner Keith Bradley has noticed a lot more Swift and Kelsey related foot traffic. It's definitely something that I think the city is really proud of. Um, whether you're whether you're a diehard fan or, or just getting to know Taylor Swift or, or never heard of her, um, you can't escape her um, her celebrity. Bradley says the relationship has inspired vendors at his store to create Swift and Kelsey centric merchandise, like a pair of earrings with both of their faces on it, or a sweatshirt in Chiefs colors that says, "I'm just here for Taylor." There's no telling whether the Taylor Swift magic will continue to rub off on Kansas City, but it can't hurt when she changes her song lyrics to include her new boyfriend. And that's a relationship residents and businesses here eagerly support, along with the benefits that Taylor Swift's star power brings. For NPR News, I'm Savannah Holly Bates in Kansas City. Karma is my boyfriend, karma is a guy. This is NPR News. It's Monday on WBUR. Coming up at 8.20, the Biden re-election campaign is facing some headwinds with concerns servicing about the candidate's age and about some early polls. It's 7.49. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Greater Boston Food Bank, committed to ending hunger here. Give the gift of a holiday meal and bring joy to our neighbors in need. A $35 donation doubles to help provide two holiday meals. Together, we have the power to make it a hunger-free holiday season. Donate now at gbfb.org slash givemeals. I'm Robin Young. We'll celebrate the Glorias from Vivaldi to John Rutter. It is like Broadway. They felt that was the highest spiritual expression they could ever get. Next time, here and now. Listen today at noon on 90.9 WBUR.
here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem are halted today amid the Israel-Hamas war. Gaza's health ministry says dozens of people were killed during airstrikes overnight in a central neighborhood of the enclave. Authorities in Colorado Springs are investigating a deadly shooting that killed one person and wounded three others. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Some areas of fog this Christmas morning and clouds around today. Highs about 50 degrees. Clouds tonight, lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday with highs in the low 50s. It's 44 degrees now in Boston. This is WBUR. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. If you're in the mood for a classic holiday tale of comfort and joy, well, that is not what you're about to hear. Once upon a time, author and humorist David Sedaris worked as a department store elf. And just like a stale candy cane, the job left an odd taste in his mouth. But lucky for us, Sedaris turned his experience into a collection of short stories called The Santa Land Diaries. So here, once again, is a morning condition holiday tradition. David Sedaris as Crumpet the Elf. I wear green velvet knickers, a forest green velvet smock, and a perky little hat decorated with spangles. This is my work uniform. I have spent the last several days sitting in a crowded, windowless Macy's classroom undergoing the first phases of elf training. You can be an entrance elf, a water cooler elf, a bridge elf, train elf, maze elf, island elf, magic window elf, usher elf, cash register elf, or exit elf. We were given a demonstration of various positions in action, acted out by returning elves who were so on stage and goofy that it made me a little sick to my stomach. I don't know that I could look anyone in the eye and exclaim, oh my goodness, I think I see Santa. Or can you close your eyes and make a very special Christmas wish? Everything these elves say seems to have an exclamation point on the end of it. It makes one's mouth hurt to speak with such forced merriment. It embarrasses me to hear people talk this way. I think I'll be a low-key sort of elf. 22,000 people came to see Santa today, and not all of them were well-behaved. Today I witnessed fistfights and vomiting in magnificent tantrums. The back hallway was jammed with people. There was a line for Santa and a line for the women's bathroom. And one woman, after asking me a thousand questions already, asked, which is the line for the women's bathroom? And I shouted that I thought it was the line with all the women in it. She said, I'm going to have you fired. I had two people say that to me today. I'm going to have you fired. Go ahead, be my guest. I'm wearing a green velvet costume. It doesn't get any worse than this. Who do these people think they are? I'm going to have you fired. And I want to lean over and say... I'm going to have you killed. The overall cutest elf is a fellow from Queens named Richie. His elf name is Snowball, and he tends to ham it up with the children, sometimes tumbling down the path to Santa's house. I generally gag when elves get that cute, but Snowball is hands down adorable. You want to put him in your pocket. Yesterday, Snowball and I worked as Santa elves, and I got excited when he started saying things like, I'd follow you to Santa's house any day, Crumpet. 
It made me dizzy, his flirtation. By mid-afternoon, I was running into walls. By late afternoon, snowball had cooled down. By the end of our shift, we were in the bathroom, changing our clothes, and all of a sudden, we were surrounded by five Santas and three other elves. All of them were guys that Snowball had been flirting with. Snowball just leads elves on, elves and Santas. This morning, I worked as an exit elf, telling people in a loud voice, this way out of Santa land. A woman was standing at one of the cash registers, paying for her pictures while her son lay beneath her, kicking and heaving, having a tantrum. The woman said, Riley, if you don't start behaving yourself, Santa's not going to bring you any of those toys you asked for. The child said, he is too going to bring me toys, liar. He already told me. The woman grabbed my arm and said, you there, elf. Tell Riley here that if he doesn't start behaving immediately, then Santa's going to change his mind and bring him coal for Christmas. I said that Santa changed his policy and no longer traffics in coal. Instead, if you're bad, he comes to your house and steals things. I told Riley that if he didn't behave himself, Santa was going to take away his TV and all his electrical appliances and leave him in the dark. The woman got a worried look on her face and said, All right, that's enough. I said, He's going to take your car and your furniture and all of your towels and blankets and leave you with nothing. The mother said, No, that's enough. Really. This afternoon, I was stuck being photo well for Santa Santa. Santa Santa has an elaborate little act for the children. He'll talk to them and give a hearty chuckle and ring his bells, and then he asks them to name their favorite Christmas carol. Santa then asks if they'll sing it for him. The children are shy and don't want to sing out loud, so Santa Santa says, Oh, little elf, little elf, help young Brenda here sing that favorite carol of hers. Late in the afternoon, a child said she didn't know what her favorite Christmas carol was. Santa Santa suggested Away in a Manger. The girl agreed to it, but didn't want to sing because she didn't know the words. Santa Santa said, Oh, little elf, little elf, come sing Away in the Manger for us. It didn't seem fair that I should have to solo, so I sang it the way Billie Holiday might have sang if she'd put out a Christmas album. Away in a manger. No crib for a bed. The little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. Santa Santa did not allow me to finish. This evening I was sent to be a photo elf. Once a child starts crying, it's all over. The parents had planned to send these pictures as cards or store them away until the child has grown and can lie, claiming to remember the experience. Tonight I saw a woman slap and shake her crying child. She yelled, Rachel, get on that man's lap and smile or I'll give you something to cry about. Then she sat Rachel on Santa's lap and I took the picture, which supposedly means, on paper, that everything is exactly the way it's supposed to be, that everything is snowy and wonderful. It's not about the child or Santa or Christmas or anything, but the parents' idea of a world they cannot make work for them. Writer and humorist David Sedaris reading from his Santa Land Diaries.
It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. This is WBUR, and it's a mild Christmas, partly cloudy today, a high around 50 degrees. Clouds tonight, lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then partly sunny skies and temperatures reaching the low 50s. It is 44 degrees in Boston, coming up on 8 o'clock. Radio Boston host Tiziana Deering, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Good morning. On this Christmas Day, Bethlehem, known as the birthplace of Jesus, is in no mood to celebrate. We speak to members of the Palestinian Christian community where Christmas festivities are canceled. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. presidential election year will soon be upon us. I'm Asma Khalid in Washington, D.C. Many younger voters and voters of color say they are turned off by politics. What's the Biden campaign doing to win their vote? And what did former South African president and human rights champion Nelson Mandela like to eat on Christmas? We ask his former chef. It's Monday, December 25th. A future world leader was born on Christmas Day in 1971. Happy birthday to Justin Trudeau. The Canadian prime minister turns 52 today. The news is next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Windsor Johnston. The celebrations traditionally held in Bethlehem have been canceled this year as the war in Gaza continues to devastate Palestinian communities. NPR's Jason DeRose reports from the Israeli-occupied West Bank, where the mood is solemn. Christmas cheer is definitely not in the air. There are about 200,000 Palestinian Christians who live in and around Bethlehem, the Galilee region, and Gaza. And usually crowds of them would be packed into Manger Square for celebrations on Christmas Day. Loudspeakers would be blaring carols. But now the mood is subdued, and Manger Square is essentially deserted this morning. That's NPR's Jason DeRose reporting. More than 20,000 people have been killed in Gaza following the attack on southern Israel by Hamas in October. Meanwhile, Israeli media are reporting that Israel's war cabinet is set to discuss an Egyptian proposal for a ceasefire in Gaza. A federal appeals court is considering a request to review a lower court ruling that threatens to end a key tool for enforcing the Voting Rights Act. As NPR's Hansi Lowang reports, this case may end up becoming the next Supreme Court fight over that landmark law from the civil rights movement. This case is about who does federal law allow to sue a state or local government and claim that it violated Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which bans racial discrimination in the elections process. For decades, the majority of those kinds of lawsuits have been brought by private individuals and groups. But a federal judge in Arkansas ruled last year that private individuals and groups do not have the right to sue because they are not explicitly named in the words of Section 2. And that judge's ruling was upheld last month by a panel of the 8th U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals. Civil rights groups are now asking the full 8th Circuit to review that ruling. 
Two conservative Supreme Court justices have signaled they're interested in hearing a case that focuses on this issue. Anzi Luang, NPR News. Protesters in Serbia are threatening to block streets in Belgrade today unless the government agrees to rerun disputed elections. The BBC's Paul Moss reports police clashed with crowds as they attempted to storm City Hall on Sunday. The protesters broke windows. They chanted slogans against Serbia's government. 35 of them were arrested. Sunday night's demonstration was the angriest yet since elections were held in Serbia earlier this month. Election monitors described serious irregularities like ballot rigging and vote buying. But even before the election, there'd been regular protests in Serbia about the state of the country's economy and its public services. More are planned for today. But the Serbian president, Aleksandar Vucic, has dismissed the protesters' complaints and vowed they wouldn't succeed. The BBC's Paul Moss. This is NPR. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. The Cardinal of Boston is wishing for peace this holiday season. In his homily for Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve, Cardinal Sean O'Malley said Catholics should remember those suffering in the wars in the Middle East and Ukraine. The Boston Globe reports O'Malley also is pushing people to have compassion for folks who are struggling with addiction, homelessness, or poverty. Um, as Massachusetts strains to provide space for newly arriving migrants, a new state report outlines where families seeking emergency shelter are being housed. Alden Bourne reports Western Massachusetts communities are hosting significant numbers. The state says less than half the families in the shelter system entered as refugees, migrants, or asylum seekers. Springfield leads the way in Western Mass with almost 300 families in the emergency shelters, followed by Holyoke and Chicopee. Roughly 100 families are in West Springfield at a Clarion Hotel. Will Reichelt is the mayor. It's tough on these families that have had to come here, but at the same time, I don't really think hotels are the best way to shelter folks. And at the rate that they're coming in and the numbers that the governor just released, how much this is going to cost, I don't see it as sustainable for the state. State officials estimate providing emergency shelter could end up costing $2 billion over two years. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Alden Bourne. Post offices, banks, and government offices are closed today in observance of the Christmas holiday. That means parking rules are relaxed. You won't need to feed the meters. If you're traveling on public transportation, then keep in mind the MBTA is operating on a Sunday schedule. Researchers in Maine are testing new lobster fishing gear thanks to a $5 million grant from the National Fish and Wildlife Foundation. Nicole Ogrisco reports the gear may help reduce the risk of entanglement for critically endangered right whales. The funds will support the research and testing of two kinds of emerging technology, gear that retrieves lobster traps from the ocean floor without the use of vertical lines, and acoustic geolocation devices that identify traps without surface buoys. Feedback will be shared with federal regulators who view on-demand fishing gear as a tool to reduce right whale entanglements. And though fishermen in southern New England have been testing the equipment, Maine lobstermen have so far been generally reluctant to give it a try. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicola Grisco. It's 8.06. WBUR supporters include Luminescence Foundation dedicated to shedding light on neurological research focused on Alzheimer's and Parkinson's diseases and supporting land conservation initiatives. 
The Patriots pulled off their fourth win of the season yesterday. The Pats clinched the 26-23 victory against the Broncos with a last-minute field goal. That breaks the five-game losing streak. The Celtics face the Lakers for a Christmas matchup in L.A. That game tips off at 5 p.m. In your Christmas forecast, partly cloudy today, highs near 50 degrees, lows in the upper 30s overnight. Some areas of fog in the morning tomorrow, then partly sunny skies and even a bit milder temperatures in the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. Thanks for listening to WBUR. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Lawmakers have fled Washington, and Congress has officially wrapped up its business for the year. It was a year full of drama, fraught with fights over the speakership and government funding. A lot happened, even if little legislation was actually passed. NPR congressional reporter Eric McDaniel is here to help us make sense of the year that was and set expectations for the year ahead. Eric, it's great to have you with us. Hey there, Asma. How should we break down what happened in 2023? I think we can do it with three Fs. We've got Mm. fired, we've got fraud, and we've got funding. Where do you want to start? (laughs) Let's start with fired. And I assume that you're talking about the former Speaker of the House here, Kevin McCarthy? That is right. The California Republican, he became the first ever Speaker of the House to be axed by his colleagues. Eight Republicans, if you remember, with a mixture of personal and policy disagreements with McCarthy, chose to remove him from the top job. Then, after the weeks of turmoil it took to replace him, he decided to quit Congress altogether, leaving his successor, Mike Johnson, with an even smaller majority to pass bills. And someone else was notably fired, but let's go ahead and save him for the fraud section. I'm going to take a wild guess here and assume that you're referring to George Santos from New York. That is right. We're talking about a first-term New York Republican in the House. Colleagues ousted him after three tries from Congress last month. That came after he was exposed by the New York Times for lying extensively about his background and then later indicted by federal prosecutors for various financial crimes mostly connected with his campaign. He has pleaded not guilty to the charges and is the first congressperson ever ousted other than Confederate sympathizers without having been fully convicted of a crime. Also in the fraud section here over in the Senate, Democratic Senator Bob Menendez of New Jersey is facing criminal charges. He and his wife were charged over allegedly accepting luxury goods and large sums of money and gold bars in exchange for committing corrupt acts, prosecutors say, including providing sensitive information to the government of Egypt. They have both pled not guilty, and the senator has so far refused to resign. Hmm. So, Eric, I believe this leaves us with your final F of the year, that is funding. How do you want to explain that to us? So, They haven't been able to pass the 12 annual federal spending bills. Instead, they passed two short-term extensions, the most recent of which will expire in two stages next year. That's January 19th and February 2nd, our government shutdown deadlines now. That is, of course, unless Mike Johnson can unite his House Republicans in a way he hasn't been able to so far. Yeah. Eric, I actually was just thinking of one more F, uh, foreign aid. That's Uh, another major issue that it seems unresolved as we wrap up the year. Right. That's another F. So it's been a year since Congress approved any military aid to Ukraine. They're currently negotiating in the Senate, even though they're on break on a big combined aid package that includes Israel and the Indo-Pacific as well. And also, kind of strangely, immigration policy reform. 
Right now, a record number of migrants are crossing the border, often in excess of 10,000 people each day seeking asylum. That negotiation has been all extremely slow going, though Senate negotiators, I'm told, are still working by the light of their holiday decor over Zoom. We should know more by early January. Yeah, we jest, but it's all very serious issues. NPR's Eric McDaniel, thank you so much. Thanks, Asma. To get a sense of how Palestinian Christians are dealing with the Israel-Gaza conflict, I've been staying in touch with Reverend Munder Isaac in Bethlehem and Tamar Haddad in Jerusalem. Early in the fighting, Christians in the West Bank made the difficult decision to call off this year's Christmas festivities in Bethlehem. They made this decision out of solidarity with Palestinians in Gaza. Here's how Reverend Munther described preparations when I spoke with him last month. No lights, no decorations. No one is in a mood to celebrate. Last week, I checked back in with the two leaders. Here's Reverend Munther again. It's a season of prayer. It's a season of prayer and a season of lament. Uh, these celebrations are canceled, but the meaning of Christmas, it's still there. It's still real for us and maybe more real than any other year because uh, the story of Christmas uh, resonates more with us in, in a profound way, particularly the fact that Jesus himself was a refugee. He escaped a massacre when he was born. As I told my congregation, we need to uh, you know, look at the true meaning of Christmas apart from the decorations and the lights and the celebrations. The true meaning of Christmas is God's solidarity with us in our pain, you know, as in how Jesus was born among the occupied and the marginalized. So we're praying, we're sending messages uh, to our people of comfort and hope, but uh, without the normal festivities. You mentioned no decorations, but I do know that there is a nativity scene there that is symbolic this year. Yes, in, in our church, we created a nativity manger made from rubble that we brought from the neighborhood, resembling a bombed house. And we placed Jesus in the middle with the Holy Family, the Magis, the shepherds surrounding that piece of rubble and looking for baby Jesus. Uh, The message is, if Jesus were born today, he would be born in Gaza under the rubble. Uh, It's a shocking message to many, but it actually, it explains the true meaning of Christmas, Uh, the presence of God with us in our pain and suffering. Hmm. And Tamar, what about you? How are you marking Christmas this year? This year, honestly, it just does not feel like Christmas. It just does not feel celebratory at all. I like the idea of what Pastor Munder said about prayers because it really is focused about prayers right now. When we last spoke, the two of you had just come to Washington. You were meeting with officials at the White House and on Capitol Hill, hoping to persuade them to support a ceasefire. That ceasefire has, of course, not happened. How do you both feel about the meetings you had and what's transpired since then? I'm going to be honest. After we did the meetings first week and uh, we were there during the humanitarian pause, and right after that, um, the fire commences. And then we see the number of deaths increase once again. So we felt like we did nothing. However, with advocacy, you plant seeds and then you see them grow later. And I know a few of the Democrats we talked to are against what Israel is doing now, whereas back then they weren't. So we are seeing small changes every day, and it gives us hope. And, and what about you, Pastor Munder? 
Um, at the end of the day, the war is still happening. And in fact, while at the White House, I remember they told us for sure uh, we are against targeting civilians and we're aware of the uh, presence of Christians in the church and so on. But the bigger picture, it feels like no one's listening. Uh, it's really heartbreaking uh, because of, as I said, the children who die every every day, every 15 minutes a child is killed. We were hoping maybe in our naivety that by Christmas the war would be over and sadly it doesn't look like it. Some days ago, a mother and a daughter were shot dead as they were walking the grounds of, of Gaza's only Catholic church. They were members of Gaza's very tiny community of Christians. And I wonder... Pastor, how worried are you about the future of the Christian community there? Do you think it will survive the war? We're really afraid that they will not survive it. Um, I received a text message just this morning from a friend within who is in the Catholic Church who said, we haven't left a building in five days now. So they feel even besieged within the church buildings. So right now, our focus is, will they survive? Uh, And most likely, uh, this war will bring uh, an end to the Christian presence in Gaza, as those people will most certainly try to find any possible life in any other place after living through this trauma. So uh, we're really concerned. Have either of you been able to sit down with political leaders in Israel since this war has started to discuss the situation in Gaza, any of your concerns about the Palestinian Christian community? No, I mean, um, I live in Bethlehem. I can't even go to Jerusalem right now. Uh, I don't have a permit to go to Jerusalem. Uh, I had one and it was revoked. Uh, Clearly, Israel is not entertaining the idea of listening to us or talking to us or to uh, Christian leaders. It's interesting because we can come to the States and share what is happening and call for a ceasefire. But to be honest with you, it's not something you do back home. Like, yes, they say it is a democracy, but we really, you can't even think of going and talking to Israeli officials. It's not going to, like, it's not an option even. You both are describing a situation of such devastation I wonder if there's anything that gives you hope in this moment. Wow, this is a tough question. <laughs> I mean, seeing seeing what is going on, um, we want to see hope and we try to see it in the smallest things. I think that's how Palestinians uh, are so resilient, is that they find hope um, even when it's very hard to see. And we're like, even if it's small, it is something. We know our cause is something to fight for. Our living and our being is a form of our resistance and we keep doing it. Um, But it's very, very hard at the moment, if I'm fully honest with you. Yeah, it's hard. It's really dark. But um, I think the biggest source of our hope right now is our faith in God, uh, the Palestinian society including, of course, Palestinian Christians, are very resilient in their uh, faith and surrender to God. I mean, uh, even you see the words of the people in Gaza who um, survive a bombing and then carry uh, dead bodies and say, uh, we trust God. They can't take away our faith in God. And this is right now our source of hope. Christmas brings us hope in the birth of a son who survived, a child who survived the massacre, and then went on to, uh, in our Christian faith, do really amazing things uh, to the world. Uh, 
So I look at the story of Jesus himself and I find hope. Mundar Isaac and Tamar Haddad, thank you both so much for taking the time to speak with us. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. This is NPR News. Good morning. Thanks for starting your day with WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes on Morning Edition, the FDA recently approved the first gene editing treatment for a human illness. You will catch up with the first person to get this therapy. It's 819. WBUR supporters include Road Scholar, creating educational travel adventures for adults around the world. Learn more at roadscholar.org slash learning. And Boston Ballet's The Nutcracker. Beloved characters and stunning dancing will enchant audiences of all ages. Through December 31st, tickets at bostonballet.org. Winter has begun, and with flurries of white, fluffy snow on the horizon, we asked how big can a snowflake get? The largest on record? 15 inches. But was it a snowflake? When people hear the you know world's biggest snowflake, they always imagine a snow crystal. This is a different beast entirely. I'm Elsa Chang. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. It is 45 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Partly cloudy today and warming up to about 50 degrees. Some clouds tonight with lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday and temperatures reaching into the low 50s. This is WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the William T. Grant Foundation, supporting research to improve the lives of young people at wtgrantfdn.org. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. The last thing you all probably want to talk about right now is politics. But for those of us who cover this all the time, it's clear a presidential election year is upon us. And 2024 is promising to be like no campaign we have experienced so far. My friend and colleague, NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith, is following the Biden campaign and joins us now with a preview of the year ahead. Good morning, my friend. Hey, Asma. So the campaign is still in its early stages, but what can you tell us about how Biden plans to run based on the kinds of things that he's been doing? 
Well, we've all seen polls showing Biden may have serious trouble with younger voters and voters of color. They are turned off from politics and in some cases disillusioned. So the Biden campaign is already spending money on advertising directed to black and Latino voters in key swing states. And part of that is trying to figure out which messages will work and how to get them to people. Not a lot of them are likely to vote for Trump or a Republican, but they could stay home or vote for a third party candidate. And the Biden campaign needs to get them engaged so they do vote and vote for Biden. So how does what we are seeing now compare to Barack Obama's reelection campaign in 2012? Well, they had a ton of people out in the field, organizers in these key states. The Biden campaign just doesn't have that yet. uh, And that makes some Democrats nervous. But the Biden team says they have to do things differently because uh, the way people get information has changed so dramatically since then. And they have begun announcing some new hires in swing states, Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada. We'll be talking about them a lot in the year to Mm -hmm. come. And we can expect to see more of that. Interestingly, they also have staff now in South Carolina. That's a state that is definitely going to go Republican in the general election, but it holds the first officially sanctioned Democratic primary of the year in early February, and the Biden team wants to win. Yeah. Tam, you and I hear the president talk every day, trying to convince voters to give him credit for the policies that he has enacted during his time in office. How do you expect that to shift at all once the campaign kicks into full gear? We're going to see him draw a lot of contrasts with Trump and Republicans on everything from healthcare to abortion to green jobs. And reporters like us have been hearing some of this in campaign fundraisers already, where he is refining his stump speech, talking about the stakes in 2024. These are off camera, but here's a taste from a recent Boston fundraiser. The audio is a little hard to hear because it was filmed on a phone by someone in the audience. Donald Trump poses a lot of threats to our country, from the right to choose, from the Affordable Care Act, health care overall, America's standing in the world. But the greatest threat he poses at all is toward a very democracy. Our very democracy, he says. In these remarks, he talks about Trump's authoritarian language and his promise of retribution. The Biden team expects this election will be incredibly close, especially in those swing states. So, Tim, let's go back to where our conversation started uh, in terms of what makes this such an unusual election cycle. First, there are essentially two incumbents, President Biden, and unless something dramatic changes, former President Trump, who still claims falsely that the last election was stolen from him. To be blunt, both are older than any president elected to a second term. They are also really unpopular, and a large share of voters say they are not looking forward to a rematch. Then you have Trump's indictments, and House Republicans have now voted to formally open an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. His son is facing tax evasion and gun charges. All of this just introduces a massive amount of uncertainty. All right. A lot to keep an eye on. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith, thanks so much. You're welcome. In South Africa, Christmas is more about beach and barbecue than snow and eggnog. But what did the country's most famous figure like on his Christmas table? Reporter Kate Bartlett spoke to Nelson Mandela's former chef about South Africa's first democratically elected president and his love of food. I'm at the house in Johannesburg that Nelson Mandela lived at while he was president. 
Now it's a luxury hotel where for a price you can sleep in the anti-apartheid icon's old bedroom. His chef of 22 years works here now and is preparing lunch in the kitchen where onions are sizzling and she's recreating some of Madiba's favorite dishes. Do you have any orders on your pastry sides today? Chef Koliswa Endoia says her late boss loved oxtail stew and his palate skewed towards traditional cause affair. He loved his stomach, but you must make sure that you're feeding him healthy. As long as you are feeding him well and there is no oil whatsoever in his plate, then you are doing very well. He also loved a fermented milk dish so much that once, when he was on presidential business in London and craving the dish, Endoia says she had to send it to him from South Africa by plane. When he came back from the trip, that's when he told me that you, you are going to go to prison because you smuggled food and yeah, that was the joke of that. Mandela himself spent 27 years in prison for his fight against racist white rule. Many of his Christmases were in a cell on Robben Island. But after his release, the holiday was usually celebrated in his Eastern Cape village of Kunu and was always a feast. We'll have a turkey, we'll have chicken and uh, beefs and lamb and all, all that. It was a special Christmas every year for him because it was all, not only for him and his family, it was for his village because he used to have a Christmas for the children of the village. Mandela, who died this month 10 years ago, once recalled his own Spartan childhood Christmases in an interview with Peter Dirk Ace in 1994. I remember the Christmases that were held as a child. And it is the only time when uh, we could have, in the countryside, sugar, because tea and coffee were reserved for elderly people. But at Christmas, then they gave us, you know, some coffee and sugar. Chef Indoia says she's keeping Mandela's favorite flavors alive, having recently published a cookbook of his best love recipes. Kate Bartlett, NPR News, Johannesburg. This is NPR News. Today's top stories are next. Then coming up at 845 on WBUR's Morning Edition, a sports media expert takes a look at how sports journalism is changing. It's 829. From NPR News in Washington, I'm John Stempen. Health officials in Gaza say Israeli airstrikes have killed nearly 100 people, many from two extended families, in central Gaza over the weekend. Israeli military officials announced the deaths of more than a dozen troops in recent days, one of the heaviest death tolls in more than 11 weeks of fighting between Israel and Hamas. NPR's Kerry Khan reports in Bethlehem 
The grim toll of the war has cast a solemn mood this Christmas day in the traditional birthplace of Jesus. Religious services continue in Bethlehem, but all public celebrations, parades and marches have been canceled. Palestinians here, like Ahmed Tayyir, says this is not a time for rejoicing. He says he has lost 30 extended family members in Gaza during the war. We hope, we hope that Hamas and Israel find some way to live. This is all we hope that. Traditional nativity scenes around the city have been replaced by replicas of Jesus, Mary, and Joseph amongst rubble and razor wire. Kerry Khan, NPR News, Bethlehem. At least one gunman opened fire during a dispute between two groups at a Colorado shopping mall. One person was killed. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. From WBUR in Boston, I'm Sharon Brody. Police are investigating a deadly shooting at a Lawrence nightclub early yesterday morning. Officials say they responded to a report of shots being fired at the Energy Lounge just after midnight. The Boston Globe reports a 29-year-old man died from gunshot wounds. Scientists have discovered an invasive species never before seen in Long Island Sound. They found a European sea slug during a recent trip to recover lobster traps off the coast. Jenny Ahrens explains that could be a problem for native species. Reba Raviraj with the Maritime Aquarium of Norwalk saw the one-and-a-half-inch bright yellow nudibrinch. The invasive slug immediately caught her attention because typical Long Island Sound slugs are smaller than the tip of your finger. The aquarium is now studying the sea slug, which feeds on sponges, to see if there might be an impact on the sound's biodiversity. We're also gathering up different sponge species that are native to Long Island Sound to see which sponges it's more attracted to, which ones is it eating more. Ravi Raj says sponges are filter feeders, and a drop in their populations could harm water quality. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Jenny Ahrens. On this Christmas Day, you may be rifling through old cookbooks for just the right recipe. A New Hampshire librarian likes to do the same, but she also likes to dig up information on the person who wrote that recipe long ago. Erin Moulton is a genealogy and reference librarian at the Derry Public Library. She teaches people how to find the identity and life story of a recipe's author, often a woman, using genealogical research. Moulton says research on old community cookbooks can give female ancestors a voice. Moulton says people can start by noting the name of the recipe's author and the cookbook's publishing date and location. That can give clues for where to look in census records and newspaper archives. It's 8.33. WVUR supporters include MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science. MathWorks.com. The Patriots picked up an unexpected win in Denver. A last-minute field goal yesterday clinched the 26-23 victory over the Broncos. The Celtics are aiming for a Christmas Day win in Los Angeles. They take on the Lakers. Game time is 5 p.m. Mild conditions in store for Christmas Day in Boston. 
partly cloudy, highs around 50 degrees, mostly cloudy tonight with lows dropping to the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then partly sunny skies and temperatures reaching the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. You're with WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. And from the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing transformative youth and criminal justice reforms. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. And I'm Michelle Martin. December of 2023 brought a major medical milestone. For the first time, the Food and Drug Administration approved a medical treatment that uses gene editing to treat a human illness. For the past four years, NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been following the story of the first person to undergo this treatment for the brutal blood disorder sickle cell disease. She is a pioneer in the research that made this approval possible. And Rob joins us now to bring us up to date on the remarkable journey of Victoria Gray. Rob, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Oh, good morning. So nice to be here. Well, yeah, because in a year of very depressing news, you know, conflicts, political turmoil, you know, hardship, this is truly a good news story. You know, it, it really is. You know, scientists and doctors have had high hopes that powerful new gene editing techniques would lead to life-changing treatments for many diseases by literally rewriting the genetic code. And that's now a reality. And what's particularly exciting is that the first approved treatment is for a disease that had long been neglected by medical research. When I first met Victoria, she was in a hospital bed in Nashville, Tennessee, undergoing what was then a highly experimental treatment. She was 34 and had been struggling with sickle cell all her life. Let's listen to some of our original reporting about Victoria. It's horrible when you can't walk or you know lift up a spoon to feed yourself it gets real hard sickle cell affects millions of people around the world including about a hundred thousand in the united states most like victoria are african-american victoria this one is not going to stop today a genetic defect deforms the red blood cells making them sickle shaped hard and sticky and they don't carry oxygen like they're supposed to, causing terrible bouts of pain. Sometimes it feels like lightning strikes in my chest and um, real sharp pains all over. And it's, it's the deep pain. You know, I can't touch it and make it better or do anything to make it better. Sometimes I would be just balled up and crying, not able to do anything for myself. That sounds just awful. Yes, it, it is. The sickle cells have already damaged Victoria's heart, made her weak, prone to infections, strokes, and more. Many people with sickle cell can't work or finish school. Many don't make it past their 40s. It's scary, and it affected my oldest son, you know, because he's older, so he understands, so he started acting out in school. And like his teacher told me, I believe Jamarius is acting out because he really believes you're gonna die. <laughs> so sorry. So sorry. Some patients can get bone marrow transplants, but for most, there's no cure. 
it was just my religion that kind of kept me going. Hmm, wow. Well, given all that, you can certainly understand why Victoria volunteered for this gene editing experiment. So, Rob, tell us, what did that entail? So first, doctors removed cells from Victoria's bone marrow. Next, scientists used the gene editing technique CRISPR to edit a gene in those cells. And then doctors infused billions of the modified cells back into her body to see if that would produce healthy red blood cells. Here's Victoria getting the treatment. A nurse hands Dr. Frangul a big syringe filled with the edited cells. Okay, perfect. He pushes the plunger. We're almost done. Yeah. When it went in, my heart rate shot up real high and um, kind of made it hard to breathe. So that was a little scary, tough moment for me. After that, I cried, but it was happy tears. <laughs> you know, just kind of overwhelming after all that I had went through to finally get what I came for. <laughs> Now, these cells won't cure sickle cell, but the hope is they'll prevent the terrible complications of the disease. Victoria calls her new gene-edited cells her super cells. Yes, they gotta be super, do great things in my body, you know, and to help me be better, you know, and help me have more time with my kids and my family. Well, Rob, that sounds pretty intense. So did the treatment work? How is Victoria doing now? You know, Michelle, she's doing incredibly well. Her bone marrow is pumping out healthy red blood cells, and she has not had a single pain crisis or had to be rushed to the hospital since her treatment. It's been nothing short of life-changing for Victoria. Four years after the treatment, she's just thriving. She's been able to start working full-time, has lots of energy to have fun and travel with her husband and kids, who are now teenagers. And earlier this year, I even spent a day sightseeing with her in London, where she was the keynote speaker at a big genetics conference. The treatment has also worked for virtually every patient who's gone through it so far, which is why the FDA decided to approve it. I talked with Victoria again just a couple weeks ago about the FDA's approval. I'm ecstatic. It's a blessing that they approved this therapy and it's a new beginning for people with sickle cell disease. You know, gene therapy, it has really turned my life around. It gave me a new lease on life. As you know, I was suffering in the beginning from sickle cell disease with constant hospital stays, blood transfusions, pain, no energy, and the biggest thing of all, fear of dying and leaving my children behind. So ever since gene therapy, I have none of those symptoms, none of those complaints, and I no longer have that fear of dying from sickle cell complications and leaving my children without a mother. So the therapy has really transformed my life more than I could have ever imagined. Well, Rob, just as advertised, this is a great story, but I do want to know what's next. Well, Michelle, it is a bit of a mixed picture. This CRISPR gene editing treatment costs $2.2 million per patient, and it's really complicated and, and grueling. So there are big worries about how many people will actually be able to get it. At the same time, there are a bunch of other promising gene editing treatments in the pipeline for everything from rare but terrible genetic disorders like, you know, muscular dystrophy to more common health problems like cancer and heart disease. So, Michelle, there's no question we're going to be hearing a lot more about gene editing medicine. That is NPR health correspondent Rob Stein. Rob, thank you so much. Oh, you bet, Michelle.
Support for NPR health coverage comes from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at metamucil.com. This is NPR News. Good morning. I'm Sharon Brody. Coming up in 10 minutes on WBUR, it's the Marketplace Morning Report. Partly cloudy today in Boston. A high about 50 degrees for your Christmas. Mostly cloudy tonight. Lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then partly sunny. And temperatures reaching the low 50s. It's 45 degrees in Boston. In business news, Billerica-based ClearMotion has its first billion-dollar contract. The company will build 3 million active suspension technology units for a Chinese electric vehicle company. The goal of the technology? Canceling out unwanted motion in cars while driving. ClearMotion says it plans to open a production facility in China. Bedford-based Ultragenics Pharmaceutical will pay a $6 million settlement. Federal officials say the company gave away test kits in order to get patient data and then targeted patients for prescriptions of its drug. The scheme also caused false insurance claims to be submitted. As part of the settlement, Ultragenics admitted to some wrongdoing. Hot Oven Cookies in Westfield is closing over what its owner says is racism and a, quote, whirlwind of toxicity and turmoil. In a social media post, the owner claims the store was targeted for advocating for the safety of a person of color who worked near the shop. The closure comes just days after the chain opened a new shop in Chicopee. It's 844. Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. It's Christmas Day and Game Day. Three NFL games plus five NBA games will be on TV today. And that busy schedule means that despite the Christmas holiday, it'll be another long work day for sports journalists, sideline reporters, and broadcast teams. And as we come to the end of 2023, it strikes me that so much of how we report on sports, like much of pop culture, has been transformed by current events, by streaming, by social media, and by AI. So what do all 
these changes mean for how we follow sports? Well, joining us now to help us make sense of that all is Keith Strudler. He's director of the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University in New Jersey. It's good to have you with us. It's great to be here. And Merry Christmas. Thank you for joining us on Christmas morning. We really appreciate that. Of course. It's festive. <laughs> well, well, let's begin by asking sort of a broad question here. What are the most significant changes you've noticed in recent years in terms of how sports are covered? Well, God, there's been so many that it's almost hard to pick one. I mean, obviously, the convergence of the industry has changed almost everything. When we've consolidated because of industrial factors, you know, the consolidation of networks, we have declining budgets for newsrooms. So as traditional mm -hmm. print publications, which were kind of the heart and soul of, of, of sports journalism and sports reporting uh, came to be, we have less people going out to cover large games, traveling, covering local games. And I think increasingly the influx of AI has made that even more pronounced, um, where we're not even sure necessarily if the games that are being covered are actually being covered by a true human, nor if people actually care to read them because they've already seen them on social and so forth. Yeah. So I think there's this myriad of factors that are kind of changing the entire nature of why or if we might even turn to the sports pages. Yeah. You know, reporting's also gone so much further, I think, beyond scores and trades. You're seeing so much reporting now on, on issues in sports around social justice, long-term health impacts. How is that affecting what it means to be a sports journalist? Well, I think it means everything, but the real question then becomes, is there a market and an economy for that? I mean, I think we're all aware that, that two of the, you know, kind of the, uh, the grandparents of sports reporting, Real Sports and the traditional New York Times sports page, have both kind of gone through, either gone away or have gone through a considerable evolution. So I think many of us, and particularly a younger generation, might be very interested in those things that happen outside the lines, to paraphrase from, from ESPN. But the reality is the leagues and those that have the economics and the you know, financial power in sports might be less interested in those storylines. So I think you're, you're going to find a real confluence in kind of what the market might demand and what some people might be interested in reporting. Can you just go back to this question of AI? What do you imagine the impact of artificial intelligence to be on sports reporting? Sure, boy, if I knew that answer, I'd be in another business. But, um, <laughs> but I do think we're going to see very few people actually reporting games. I just can't imagine that there's going to be a market for that. So I imagine we will expect that almost everything that we see on the sports pages that is game coverage is probably going to be generated by a computer somewhere. Oh, wow. Keith Strudler is the director of the School of Communication and Media at Montclair State University. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you, and happy holidays. This is Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Asma Khalid. Coming up at the top of the hour on WBUR, it's the BBC News Hour with the latest reports from the Hamas-run health ministry in Gaza, which says more than 70 people were killed in an explosion at a refugee camp in the center of the territory. It's 849. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at Sincere.com.
Here's a look at some of the stories we're following this Monday morning. Christmas celebrations in Bethlehem are canceled because of the fighting between Israel and Hamas. Shipping companies say they are resuming operations in the Red Sea following attacks from Iranian militants. A charter plane carrying over 300 Indian people to Nicaragua has been allowed to leave a French airport after it was grounded there for days for a human trafficking investigation. Stay up to date on the news all day here on 90.9 WBUR and on the WBUR app. Winter has begun, and with flurries of white, fluffy snow on the horizon, we asked how big can a snowflake get? The largest on record? 15 inches. But was it a snowflake? When people hear the you know world's biggest snowflake, they always imagine a snow crystal, which is a different beast entirely. I'm Elsa Chang. More on All Things Considered from NPR News. Listen today starting at 4 on 90.9 WBUR. In the Christmas forecast, partly cloudy today and a high about 50 degrees. Clouds tonight, lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday. Temperatures reaching all the way up into the low 50s. It is 45 degrees in Boston. Mental health care may soon get easier to access for those on Medicare. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by UKG, an HR payroll and workforce management solution designed to help make a fairy tale workplace a reality. UKG, our purpose is people. For Marketplace, I'm Novasafo, in for David Brancaccio. Merry Christmas. In the new year, seniors and others covered under Medicare will have more options for mental health coverage. Congress has approved an expansion in eligible providers under the program. They will almost double come January 1st, adding licensed mental health counselors and marriage and family therapists to the mix. Marketplace's Savannah Marr has the details. When people age into Medicare coverage or become eligible because of a disability, that sometimes means leaving a trusted counselor behind. It's happened a few times to Erin Schaefer's clients. She practices marriage and family therapy in Ohio. That's been devastating for people who have made a connection, perhaps stabilized in their symptoms, and then have to have that kind of disruption to their services. And finding another provider who can accept Medicare can be tough, says Beth McGinty, a health economist at Cornell. You are really limited in Medicare to psychiatrists and psychologists. There are shortages in many areas of the country for these groups. This change on January 1st will make some 400,000 providers, or 40% of the mental health workforce, eligible to bill the program. It will approximately double the amount of mental health providers who your Medicare uh, covers. And could fill a critical gap in rural parts of the country, where one in three adults is enrolled in Medicare, according to the Census Bureau, and where psychiatrists and psychologists are in especially short supply. So this really significantly changes the game. Says Blake Edwards with Columbia Valley Community Health in North Central Washington. In terms of uh, our ability to hire for and um, expand capacity for our behavioral health services. In 2024, Edwards says eight of his clinic's behavioral health providers will start accepting Medicare patients and help meet rapidly growing demand for mental health services. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace.
The money news never sleeps, but Wall Street sure does take Christmas off. U.S. markets are closed. They reopen tomorrow, Tuesday, at 9.30 a.m. Eastern. Never fear, though. My Marketplace colleague, Kimberly Adams, is in the host chair today for Kai Rizdahl, and we'll have a fresh program for you later this afternoon. Listen in for today's developments on many public radio stations or at the press of a digital button at Marketplace.org. Marketplace Morning Report is supported by Charles Schwab. Schwab believes every investor deserves to work with a firm they can count on. That's why Schwab has financial consultants ready to serve their clients, plus professional answers and 24-7 live help. Learn more at schwab.com. And by Ripple. With major disasters comes swarming media attention. But what happens to those affected when the world moves on? Ripple, a new investigative podcast launching in January. Do you ever get the feeling that social media is taking over your life? That your day-to-day is ruled by the buzz of notifications and the pings of incoming messages? Well, guilty as charged. Well, increasing numbers of Europeans are taking digital detox vacations to get away from computers and smartphones. That sounds pretty good right now. The BBC's Elizabeth Hodson takes us on that journey. Are you addicted to social media? If so, you're not alone. Market research company Global Web Index has found that 60% of the world's population uses social media for an average of nearly two and a half hours every day. And for some people, it can be far higher, like Mia Young, a writer and content creator from London. I use it pretty much 24 hours a day when I'm not sleeping. It's by my bed. It's the first thing I look at in the morning, last thing I look at at night. Her job means she's rarely away from the glow of her smartphone screen. I engage with the people that follow me. I like to answer any comments. But when Mia started working on a book, she decided the smartphone habit needed to be kicked. So she booked herself into the Glasshouse Retreat in Essex in the south of England for a week. As well as yoga, early morning walks and sound baths, it also offers a digital detox. The wellness manager, Jamie Walton, showed me one of the bedrooms, which is around $440 a night. Inside the wardrobes, you've got a normal safe, and then we've got this little white plastic box here. And you can pop your phone in there, you turn the dial to choose how many hours or days that you want, and then you press it in and it will lock the box, so there is no way to open it. But surely, if you really want your phone, you can ask nicely at reception. Not so, says Jamie. There's no override key, you can't force it open. The only way would be with like a hacksaw, which we have had to do for a guest before because she thought she'd booked two hours and she put two days and she needed her phone. So have any of the guests taken the lockbox option? Jaina Tokai told me that she'd been tempted. I think it's a difficult thing in your mind. You're like, I definitely want to do it. But the actual putting it away, face down, leaving it alone is quite tricky. She says she has children, so she doesn't feel she can lock her phone away completely. So how about content creator Mia? I was advised not to do it for the full seven nights in one go. So I did it slowly. I did 24 hours the first evening and it felt very odd having breakfast on my own. But she said she enjoyed just sitting and thinking without the distraction of her phone. And she has realised she doesn't have to answer social media messages straight away. 
I can actually just block off some time to get on top of it rather than continuously being available. Mia used some of her permitted screen time during her stay to order herself something, a phone lockbox for home. I'm the BBC's very relaxed Elizabeth Hotson for Marketplace. And our Marketplace colleagues at the BBC have also been working hard on a series appropriately about productivity. Tomorrow they head to Ireland. The Emerald Isle leads the world in productivity, according to the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. That puts it ahead of the U.S., also Germany and other G7 countries. Hear why tomorrow on this program. I'm Nova Safa with the Marketplace Morning Report. Have a very Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. From APM, American Public Media. It is 45 degrees in Boston on this Christmas morning. Some clouds around today and highs about 50 degrees. Mostly cloudy tonight, overnight lows in the upper 30s. Some fog in the morning tomorrow, then a partly sunny Tuesday and highs reaching the low 50s. The BBC NewsHour is next at 9 o'clock here on WBUR. I'm WBUR City Space Director Amy McDonald, and this is 90.9 WBUR FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Booster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station.